In a time where we are overloaded with information at a pace that seems impossible to keep up with, we can feel overwhelmed and it's hard to know where we stand in this world, what we should strive for, what's real. I believe there's great power in sharing truth, vulnerability and authenticity. And in my line of work, I've had the privilege of connecting with exceptional human beings who have achieved some pretty magnificent things. Some have been lucky, but most have experienced adversity and pain, yet have found a way to triumph in their actions with some great stories, humor and wisdom along the way. I want to share the love, knowledge and the stories that have inspired me straight from the source. My name is Sharon Joel and I'm an entertainer and storyteller. I'm here to serve you what's real, the people and their stories. These are the real ones. Melissa Leong. Who is she? You may have heard of her most recently through her appointment as the first female judge on the biggest TV show in Australia and definitely the most successful of its franchise in the world, MasterChef Australia. But that's not it. She's been a freelance food and travel writer, food media consultant, radio broadcaster, television presenter on SBS The Chef's Line, MC, cookbook editor and author for years. Her work history almost mirrors her motto, we'll eat anything once. Her rise to success hasn't been as smooth as you'd imagine, as she too has experienced adversity and severe downs on her rise up. I have found this woman's intelligence, raw honesty, articulation, and incredible ability to communicate truth beautifully captivating. And she has personality for days. You're going to want to be her best friend after this. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much (laughs) for coming on. Honestly, I know you've got a grueling work schedule. Um, Unlike some of the contestants that I've already spoken to, we can talk about where you are in the competition, which is at the forefront. Um, And you're going to be filming the whole whole way through. I... um, I can't even, honestly, I, I always do this with people I talk to. I did a little stalky stalk this morning and I just was like <laughs> overwhelmed by the level of achievement and what you've done in your life. You're a veteran in the Aussie food industry and there is so much behind you as a person. So with this podcast, obviously, the purpose is to get into all of that and kind of figure out how you got to where you got to. So first of all, how are you feeling in ISO? How are you feeling? <laughs> well, we're still filming. Um, we're part way through, as you mentioned. Uh, almost, we're over halfway now. I can say that. I think I can say that. Uh, we're halfway through filming MasterChef, and so I'm in ISO when I'm not at work. Um, so we're still filming. You know, depending on the, the week, three to four days a week, and. If I'm not there, I'm here because obviously it's the responsible thing to do. And also, you know, while we are allowed to film and we're all still well and good, um, I don't want to risk, you know, the opportunity not to be there right until the very end because this show has really floored me in terms of the calibre of talent, the amount of heart and the amount of realness that I've been shown, the generosity of spirit I've been shown. So I really want to be there right till the very end. So ISO is uh, semi-ISO for me, I suppose, (laughs) uh, because I do get to interact with people outside of, you know, my my family household. And um, But when I'm here, you know, it's very much about hanging out with my husband, Joe, who I live with and, um, and our cats and just sort of you know, cook, doing a lot of cooking as per every single person on the planet right now. 
and um, and just catching up on movies and books and and doing the things that we as busy people don't normally get to do a lot of. Yeah, I hear you. And that even working through ISO, so uh, we're back to work next week and we are still, we're working mm. through, so we're not, we can't work from home as actors, but there is that added level of pressure. <laughs> don't you think of like yeah. making sure that you do everything you can to ensure that the show still goes on as a judge Absolutely. It's, you know, we take this job very seriously. This is, um, you know, to quote the devil wears Prada or to paraphrase the devil wears Prada, the job that a million girls wanted. And I was, you know, I was gifted this job because I, I, you know, I wasn't, wasn't seeking it at all. And it it came to me, but I've fallen in love with this role and with this, um, with this new um, sort of job in life. And so I want to be there right to the very end. And I want to be present. I want to be, you know, part of this very special thing and really see that this first season through so you know it does it does mean a lot and it's tough when you know we are such hard-working people and we um you know we're sort of used to doing a whole bunch of stuff in addition to what we do for work um but right now it's I think the world is teaching us to sort of distill our focus and dedicate it to the things that we can and be very grateful for the things that are going on in our lives that we can sort of continue that momentum with. I totally agree with you there and I feel like I say this to everyone but it's almost like it's the forced rest we needed to have. Obviously it's not under ideal conditions and there's a lot of uh, crazy stuff that's happening around the world but it's like you're right, you have to, it forces you to focus on what's really important like that family time that you're having with your husband and your cats at the moment. You probably would not especially doing this show as well and all of the commitments that you have around it. I mean, you're probably still doing media over the phone, doing this with me now and all of that sort of stuff, but <laughs> that quality this time that you yeah. <laughs> This is fun. This is just a chat yeah. love, and this is why I love it. But you get to actually spend that time doing stuff like cooking, for instance. You sent me a pic the other night. Um, uh, and and let's, let's be honest here, your level of cooking is way, way better than mine. Like just your like little pasta oh. at home with your red wine. I was just like, whoa, you should take a picture of that, put it in a magazine. It's so good. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about all of that. Okay, first of all, MasterChef, mm. obviously this is happening yeah. right now. Were you a little bit nervous? I know I was talking to some friends on the show. They were a bit nervous of how this would go down at this specific time in the world. I actually Mm. didn't even think there could be a negative to it at all because more people are home than ever. You're right, more people are cooking than ever. But that particular show, the show that you're on, brings so much heart and warmth to people and that beautiful, I think Carrie Bickmore described it as a big hug. I think that's what she said, like the day after. Yeah, the the day after. And I was like, that's exactly how it felt. How did you, were you anxious, obviously because you're a new judge on the show and there's three <laughs> were you anxious about that? What, how did you feel? Um, look, we were very conscious of the fact that there's a big change afoot in the show this year, obviously three new judges and, you know, this season is about back to win so it's not a regular year as well because we have 24 beloved members of the MasterChef family across all of the seasons coming back and, and, and trying to prove themselves to see if they can take out you know the win and and get their name on that beautiful beautiful um, trophy of ours so you know there's it's it's a different year altogether and so we're very uh, you know it's very much wait and see in terms of how Australia would receive it you know what what they make of it all because it's it's 
It's the audience's show. We do this. It's a great uh, privilege to be a judge on this show and for the competitors, I know I can speak for them in saying in competing on the show, but it, this show belongs to the audience members who love this show so much and have done over, you know, the, the 20 or so years. I mean, MasterChef originally it, it, uh, started in the 90s in the UK and has had so many iterations all across the globe. Of course, Australia is the most successful one and, you know, it has been an incredible, you know, sort of over a decade worth of watching what, um, you know, what this show can do in terms of educating Australians and the world in terms of just general food IQ and all of that sort of stuff. So it's this huge thing and we've stepped into it and we feel very fortunate to be here. So we're very conscious of doing everything we can to bring all of ourselves, to bring our best selves to this. And then, you know, whatever happens is out of our control beyond that. Um, you know, you and I always sort of talk about um the importance of being real with each other and how there is no way to resonate and connect with people if you aren't real because then you just you don't know what's tangible so for us you know for Jock and Andy and myself you know we are very real and direct with each other I think that's sort of the benefit of the three of us in terms of our personalities we don't um we don't do the whole you know, everything's fine. We just talk about what's real and, and if something bothers us um, or if something's going on with us, we just talk to each other about it. So I know that that comes across in terms of the way we interact on camera and the way we are with the contestants as well because tensions run so high in that kitchen. Oh. It's a very stressful place for our contestants because the, the pressure is really on for their businesses, for, you know, their own, you know, uh, sort of profiles within Australia and you know of course their cooking prowess and we don't make it easy for them <laughs> I have to say you 100% are correct in that that's how I gravitated towards you in the first place is that reality and that realness and that genuine authenticity about you and it's really great to hear you even say that you're aware that it comes off on screen that way. This whole coming back to win thing, I just think it was a, a masterpiece in strategy because, great. you you know, familiarity, especially, and you could not have obviously foreseen or foreshadowed what's happening right now, but familiarity at a time like this is everything. And a show like MasterChef has literally changed the way this country cooks and sees food Absolutely. and receives food and experiences food, which is incredible. Now, like, let's talk about, you were right in saying <laughs> this is a job that every girl, you brought the female energy to this show, right? And mm. and, and obviously this is, is historic in that you've been that person to do that. And I um, obviously loved you from before you were even on the show. And when I saw you on there, because you just never really know like how it's going to go. There's so many different elements yeah. of interaction and the judges and, and how it's edited and all of that sort of stuff, but just nailed it. And I'm so proud to say that I feel like yeah. that show is like a, a true representation of how you come across in real life as a person. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about that whole, were you nervous about uh, these new judges? Did you know them before you came onto the show? <laughs> <laughs> I had interviewed Jock before and about sort of maybe five years prior to this. So a uh, half-day shoot with him, uh, I edit, was co-editing a cookbook called The Great Australian Cookbook and we flew to Adelaide and we shot with him at Orana and um, his other restaurant as well. And I, I interviewed him on camera 
And, you know, we were sort of having this discussion on what does Australian cuisine mean to him? Um, And I sort of postulated to him that for me what Australian cuisine is is an amalgamation of our migrant heritage and also our Indigenous history and the ingredients that come from the land that we are very privileged enough to live on and all of the cultural influences that we have that that have come to this beautiful country that we call Australia. And he at the time was very, you know, he was like, no, it's this, the focus is about Indigenous ingredients. Mm-hmm. And I went away going, there's a guy who is very fixed on on his idea. And I wasn't sure how I felt about him, to be honest. You know, I interview chefs all of the time and sort of you set aside your bias, you do the interview, you write the words and then, you know, you get on with your life once you've filed that story and moved on. Um, so I'd, I'd only had that very brief interaction with him, which was really not enough to get to know him. Um, and then in terms of Andy, obviously knowing that he'd won the show, but apart from that, he's a business partner partner of some very good friends of mine. So I, I know Darren Robertson. I've known Darren Robertson and Mark LeBroy for a really long time. His business partner's in Three Blue Ducks. And um, I only knew him by reputation as being a lovely guy, someone that they vouched for. And I thought, well, if they've vouched for him, then he has to be the good guy. But we've never really interacted much. And then, um, you know, they they made they and More Shine, the wonderful production company who, um, who make Master Chef that have been responsible for its its crazy success. I, so I'd never really interacted much with Andy and it was funny when the three of us sat in the room for the first time uh, and then everybody left and they just left us alone in the room. Um, from the get-go, there has never been an uncomfortable silence. Mm. There has always been this sense of, um, okay, we're in this together now and, you know, this is my new family and we have had each other each other's backs ever since you know it's um we all just sort of sat there and went okay this is happening we've all said yes to this opportunity and now we're committing to doing the best possible job that we can and that involves working on our relationships as friends and as colleagues as well and obviously you know through Mm. you know through filming the hours are long (laughs) yeah you want to do them with people that you um like spending time with for sure oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) because if you don't get along with the people that you work with so closely for such extended hours of the day um it wears thin very quickly so you know you know if you have synergy because it's a pleasure to be around people and so for Jock and Andy and I you know we spend all day every day and you know together when we work but then we also text and message each other and you know call each other after work as well and especially now that we're all in ISO um, it's you know just checking in on each other and making sure we're we're fine as well so um, there's been a wonderful friendship that has been born out of that and how they knew, how Endemol knew, how to put the three of us together, um, you know, in, a term, in terms of the, the cold strategic angles, that makes, it all makes a lot of sense. You know, Andy is the golden child who came from a different career, went on the show, worked really hard, found his love of food and won and has now become a co-owner in a hatted restaurant. That's the dream for any MasterChef contestant, Huge. right? And then you have Jock, who is the, you know, 
the rock and roll, three hat, super technical, very, very experienced chef who also brings a lot of heart and a lot of soul and has had a really a roller coaster of a life as well as a career and he yeah. brings all of that experience and that knowledge and advice you know, to the kitchen. And then you have me as the writer, the storyteller, the one who knits these things together and the one who communicates the experience of consuming food to, you know, millions of people who are not able to hear and taste and watch what, what we're doing because, you know, that's that's my whole job. So on, on that sort of technical, critical level, I understand why the three of us work, but in terms of interpersonal relationships, that's, you know, that's alchemy. So, you know, the, the fantasies and, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been wonderful. It's been a, a real exercise in trusting people to do what they do to the best of their ability and, you know, just sort of, you know, just let go a little bit and, um, and sort of trust the process and it's been really wonderful. I just, I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of your respective roles on the show. And I think it was just, again, strategically so great to have three people in at the same time, you know, not someone who's been there for a lengthy period of time and then someone else new come in. It just doesn't feel like there's any sort of competitive nature or anything. It's just everyone Mm. seems to be very aware of what they bring to the show and they do it beautifully. And you do tie in, and I did, I was saying this to my husband the other day when we were watching you, it's just you just summarise. I was like, I wish I was, I mean, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not that concise. You (laughs) summarise the experience so quickly and so easily and so perfect it's like yeah, that's exactly right you're like yes that's what it is now even in that whole in that whole like getting to this point like I know when we auditioned for shows and stuff like I was a part of a family so we had to do chemistry tests we had to do a number of mm-hmm. different auditions what's the whole process up until you getting that and I want to know how you felt because this is the stuff that like just gives me butterflies this is, this is the crazy thing is that the, there was no real chemistry test so they had decided they had decided who who it was before any of that had happened. So I was on assignment in uh, in Vietnam. So I just landed in Vietnam. I'd been obviously, you know, flying and off internet and all of that for you know quite some time. And um, when I had a little bit of Wi-Fi, I got an email and I got a message from one of the um, one of the the executive producers at um at Endemol and I didn't really I was so jet lagged and tired I had no idea what was going on so I just kind of forwarded the messages to my manager and um and I just said, said Lizzie I have no idea what this is so would you mind just sort of checking it out and then I got on a boat to sail down the Mekong with David Thompson who's a wonderful very revered Australian chef who cooks uh, Thai cuisine, you know, like an absolute angel. And so we sailed down the river together for five days and I arrived in Cambodia in Phnom Penh and there was this, just this flurry of text messages and, and emails and things and uh, call me as soon as you can. And and so it was that the, you know, obviously the announcement had happened that, um, you know, the boys were leaving the show. I thought absolutely nothing of it because I, you know, at that point was still, um, you know, I'm, I'm also part of the SBS family in many mm. ways. That's where I was given my start in television, and I was still expecting that we may we may be going on to um, the Chef's Line season three because it, you know, Chef's Line had been picked up by Netflix and it's been doing really well. So I just was in that 
land. I sort of thought, okay, well, you know, that's my franchise that I'm attached to. And so then all of this happened and they said, well, you've gone from being on the shortlist to being the list. Um, so when you get back from Cambodia, they want you to come in and meet with them. And I said, okay, well, I, I guess, you know, I'm Chinese background, so you don't count your chickens before they hatch. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, let's go have this conversation. Let's see what, let's see what this is about. And I sat in that meeting um, with uh, Marty Benson and Pete Newman and they said, okay, this is the history of MasterChef. This is the, 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 the largesse of it all. And, um, you know, the whole song and dance. And they said, okay, so to, to that end, we'd love to offer you, um, to, we'd, we'd, we'd like to ask you to be part of that. And um, I thought, okay, an hour, this is an hour into the meeting. I was like, okay, um, right. Uh, there it is. There it is on the plate. And they, uh, Marty had the, his laptop open and I said, I'm assuming on the other side of that laptop is my picture and two other people's pictures. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And it was like that, um, do you remember that show Perfect Match, that dating show yeah. in, the, <laughs> yeah. in the 90s? Um, and I just fully expected like the, the laptop to be sort of <laughs> rotated around. Ooh, wow, these are your perfect matches. And, um, and I just, I saw the faces and obviously I, I recognised the faces, but I didn't, I don't really, I didn't really know them. And so then we sort of continued the conversation and, you know, it was all very, from that meeting to, um, to sort of, saying yes I went away and had a big think about it because I sort of said look I'm a journalist so it's my job to think critically and as much as this opportunity is the opportunity of a lifetime I'm also aware of what this kind of job does to your life and I'm an introvert and I'm the one taking I'm, I'm the one sort of administering the interviews not being on the receiving end so I had to really think about how comfortable I would feel to sort of have the tables turned on me and to also uh, think about how comfortable I was to sort of open up my um, my life a little bit more to um, you know to the world because of course when you're on a show like that people want to know more about you and it's not that I have anything to hide. It's just I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm quite a private person. So sharing that is kind of a little bit daunting to me. So I had to go away and really think about how this job would change my life. And I did. And, um, you know, sort of from a, from a career perspective, you know, this is it. This is the job everyone waits for. Um, that allows you to not only express uh, all of the knowledge that you've you've banked up over the years of working in an industry, but also to um, you know to be able to share that with the world and um, and to you know be able to um, take care of your family. And I'm, yeah. I've been freelance. I've been freelance for fifteen years. It's so a hard life. Um, I live I live very uh, in in quite with quite a degree of uncertainty all the time. And so to have a job where I can sort of have maybe a little bit of security in my life um, was a very, very different proposition. Um, so yeah, it's a, a lot to a lot to weigh up, you know. It's not it's you don't just say yes. I, I believe in really doing a due diligence and making mm -hmm. sure you know what you're letting in the door when you open it. Uh, I really just makes me laugh because it, they might have been, I don't know how everyone else or the other judges responded to that, but mm. they'd be like, really? She's going to think about it? She's going to go, go yeah. away? There. But 100% you need to make the right decision for yourself and your family and you had 
quite an illustrious career before that. And just because mm. you've been offered the job of a lifetime on a mainstream television channel that a lot of it has a huge already existing audience mm. does not necessarily mean it's it's the right thing for you. But let's talk about your, how did you even know? I, okay, so I know that before this you were a digital advertiser, mm. you did PR marketing um, mm-hmm. and digital media consulting, all of that stuff. How did you know you wanted to work with food? I think I read somewhere it has to do with your Singaporean heritage, your parents. Are yeah, people people always sort of ask me, you know, like, what's your great qualification in food? And, you know, like I, I didn't do a master's in gastronomy like a lot of my friends did. Uh, I did a degree in economics and social sciences. So I did not know at that point I wanted to work in food, but I was working in digital advertising. I was at um, Ogilvy, Singleton Ogilvy Interactive at the time. And, you know, it was the dawn of social media in many ways. It was around sort of 2006, 2007, and things like Facebook and Twitter were reasonably new concepts in Australia. You know, we still had MySpace pages and things like that. And so we were all encouraged to kind of open up as many social media accounts across all of the platforms um, in order to understand how they work. And so therefore we could go back to our clients and uh, sort of explain this new space, this, the whole, this whole new world. And so, you know, you obviously pick a certain subjects that you find interesting so that you can then find the communities that match that and become part of them. And I picked food on gut instinct because my parents are from Singapore, the Singaporean Chinese food is just part of how we communicate with each other. You know, you have a fight, you, you get over it by sitting down at the table and eating food. You know, like if, you, if you're feeling sad, someone feeds you. Like that's just, that's just the way that it works. It works with a lot of families that way across the world. And um, I didn't want to waste too much time researching something I didn't know. So I picked food because I felt like I knew enough, mm-hmm. which is laughable now thinking about how much more I know about food. But um, I just picked food just on gut instinct. I said, okay, I've got to do this. Had to open up a blog and, and do all of that. And I picked Foodorati as a, I think it took me two minutes to decide. And I just sort of thought, oh, look, you know, uh, literati, Illuminati, Foodorati. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. The zenith, the zenith of food, you know, the, 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 knowing of, the knowing of a subject. Okay, I'll, I'll pick that. And it's funny how this, this word has just followed me across, you know, a decade and a half of, um, you know, blogging and then into freelance writing and then consulting and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it started off with that. And um, as I, I started sort of, you know, in the social media space, um, uh, someone in Sydney, an editor, said, um, you know, we need to revamp our food section in our publication, so would you be interested in sort of heading that up? And for the next couple of years it was just an exercise in saying yes and and asking people uh, for opportunities. So Time Out Sydney started and so I wrote to, you know, their, uh, their food editor at the time and I said, look, I've been freelance writing for these very local publications in Sydney and, you know, I, I, when I lived in London, I loved Time Out because it was really sort of 
the you know the go-to if you'd had no idea where to go or what to do you would just go get a time out and um you would know what gigs were on and where which restaurants and bars to visit and all of that sort of stuff so I really wanted to get on board with that and you know to my surprise they said yep sure you know here's your first round of reviews and I started reviewing and and it just snowballed from there as I got to know more and more people in the industry more and more people were uh very kind enough to give me opportunities to learn and to grow and um and I found a wonderful um sort of set of mentors that taught me a lot as well so I kind of yeah it it was just a a very piecemeal um, way of finding my way into the industry starting off as an interest and then it turning into a career over time Um, but I think for me the one thing that um, has sort of overarched all of that and knits it together is that um, being uh, you know of a Chinese Singaporean descent growing up in Australia um, in you know a neighborhood that wasn't particularly dominated by people who looked like me I always wanted to be understood yeah no matter who I became and what I ended up doing for work I just always wanted to make sure that I was understood which is why um, you know writing was so important to me in the beginning was not because I considered myself a writer but I just knew that if I was if I um, if I was going to write I was going to be understood so let's just be the best at that and everything else, the radio, um, you know, the television, the emceeing, all of that sort of um, stuff has been born out of that same desire to want to be understood on every platform. I don't ever want to be misunderstood. That is so crazy that you just said that because I literally had similar, if not the same experience growing up with Indian heritage um, parents uh, and we grew up in a very rural country town where there was just no one that looked like me. And literally my whole life, everything boils down to wanting to be seen and heard um, and and, and understood in different spaces. And that's why, um, I mean, going going to cultural identity, I saw you at the 10, Channel 10, so we were on the same network Channel 10 yes. and we, we were, I saw you at the upfronts and that's for the people of audience who don't understand basically your network puts on um, uh, an event where basically people from uh, different shows, executives, you, the, the people behind the scenes I suppose come together to kind of see what's happening for the following year and I remember you stood up there with I think it, Andy was out, don't think um, Jock was out, I can't remember but was, I remember. Uh, Andy oh, and Jock and then Osha, uh, yeah, that's and right. Osha was he was hosting. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And you, the first thing you said, and I think you're wearing a beautiful, we'll talk about fashion soon as well, <laughs> a beautiful bright dress or, or, or something. And then um, you just said like what something along the lines of what this represents um, for a person like me, a woman of colour, you said something about diversity. And I was like, yes, because I look around and I always do this when I walk into a room, unfortunately, or whatever. I'm so mindful of the space that I'm in and being like the only person of colour or like the only person that looks like me in a space. Yeah. And I'm like, she just said that to everyone, everyone. And the people that we consider our employees, people that we need to impress, the people who are kind of our decision makers, just said it. And it's and it's like <laughs> that, that representation as well. You know, you don't hear about that. You didn't do it in a public space. You did it to the people that matter and I suppose the people that we're most scared of. And just by you, (laughs) you even being on the show and doing that, I mean, surely you have to, you would have to know how much that would mean to people that you don't even know about. I mean, yeah, you- look, I, I didn't think about that when I started in, like for, for me, I guess television has augmented 
the the um my role in representation maybe a little bit more than I would have thought I just I'm just me trying to survive and and you know do jobs that make me really happy and challenge me um but then the second I stepped onto television and I sort of received a little bit more feedback from people saying hey um thank you for being you in this space because I see you know a little bit of myself where I'm really happy that my children get to watch someone who looks like you on our screens yeah that was that was the turning point where I I stopped being so flippant about it and I thought okay look it's not curing cancer by any means but each and every one of us and our stories and our backgrounds matter you know diversity I think a lot of people sort of hear the word diversity and think oh I don't want to know about that and for me, diversity is not to the detriment of excluding people. Diversity to me means inclusivity. It means uh, even representation for all, you know, walks of life, you know, for the able and the differently abled, for everyone from different parts of the world who speak different languages to be understood, to be seen, to be valued and not to be overlooked. You know, that to me is really important. And um yeah, being in this space now on on a prime network, uh, on a primetime show that, you know, represents commercially a, a huge thing for many, many, many people. Um, I do take my job very seriously in terms of the critical contribution I make. Um, but, you know, when I got up in the upfronts and I said, you know, what does it mean to me? It means representation is, is at the forefront of consideration. Uh, what I've, I appreciate is that 10 is a network that, season understands where we're moving forward to and where we are moving forward to is to consider ourselves as a global nation you know as a, as a global place and to be able to represent the faces and the stories that make you know make up that you know that globe so uh, I, I feel like it was a very uh, brave move but it's a timely move I think it's the right time and I think that as we continue on you know in in every facet, news and news reporting, um, you know, television, drama, reality, all of that, it needs to include all of us. It cannot continue to be, um, you know, as homogenous as it has been in certain markets across the world. Yeah. So, um, you know, to be part of that's pretty cool. You're, you're completely right there. You just, you're doing you, uh, sometimes unintentionally, I suppose, being that flag bearer for whatever it is, um, whether it's your ethnicity, whether it's your sexuality, whether it's your ability. And then things, there is a shift and it changes. Like I know from my own personal growth and where I've kind of come, I didn't really want that responsibility at the start. And then it kind of was thrust upon me and then I embraced it. But it's also figuring out how to communicate that and how you feel about that in a space where it's not necessarily received um, in a positive way because you're right, some people think it's too hard or I just don't want to deal with it. And what it requires is a collective, cohesive, I suppose, understanding and vision of, like you said, our network, Channel 10, seeing where we're going with it because we are in really in the infancy stage of it in our country. Other countries yeah. are a little bit further ahead and then, Sometimes, you know, it can be frustrating and it makes you angry and it can be exhausting always trying to fight that fight. Um, but when you see it in action, like how you did it that day, and I'm sure you've done it a million other times before, it's like, yep, that's exactly right. And and there are there's that, you know, connection. Let's talk about that though. So how was it like growing up um, 
with your parents be doing freelance work i know my parents are that typical <laughs> typical stereotype you know yeah, yeah you know i was like maybe your parents are really cool and like mm. uh, you know modern and whatever my parents literally just pressured me into either doing dentistry being a doctor being a lawyer lawyer yeah. me was oh, yeah. the closest thing to acting so i was like i'll do that ah. so that i could stay under your roof and i'm not disowned okay. and, and it All is right. and, and, I, and i felt like even when i was doing the lawyering i was acting because I was again in a space of predominantly old white men and I had to yeah. play a part and do a certain thing but yeah I did yeah. that so how did you go yeah. with all of that <laughs> were you kicked out like um I wasn't kicked out my parents are incredible and they are very progressive for um you know for, for their background definitely because they're very conservative but um you know I I was, I played the piano as a kid. I, I was on track to going to the conservatorium and, and wow. becoming a professional concert pianist. And then I got injured um, sort of around the age of about 14. I did, started to develop repetitive strain injury in my right posterior capsules, my right shoulder, which radiates all the way through into my elbow and my wrist. And the pain is still something I deal with um, on a regular basis now. And so it was as it was like a sporting decision at that point with my teachers and my parents and they said look she's already injured so what that means if she goes professional or she trains to become a professional um, is ongoing you know pain management physiotherapy potential surgery and at 16 years old I was I was like oh, what do I really want that? You know, that's really scary. So I ended up deciding um, not to and I chose to do an economics degree because uh, it was something that was quite a, it was at Sydney University and it was something that was reasonably flexible, would allow me to take on humanities subjects uh, as well as to sort of have those core business subjects that would allow me to have, to make my decision as to where I wanted to go as I was studying because I thought I was going to be a concert pianist. I didn't know that I was going to have to make other decisions and, and alternative choices. So I, I chose that and, and throughout the entire degree, which was a wonderful degree, I got to study, um, you know, lots of different things, including, you know, Asian studies and Asian history, as well as, um, you know, human resources and political economy and, you know, all sorts of different things. And I loved it. I loved the generalist nature of the degree. Uh, did not love econometrics as much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I did it and I thought, oh, you'll figure out what you want to do when you're doing it. And I didn't. I finished my degree and I still didn't feel like I knew, oh, I definitely want to go into, you know, HR. I want to, you know, I want to go be an economist or something like that. I just kind of just felt really unsure of it all. And throughout my degree, I was working, um, I started off working when I was 17, when I started university uh, at Clinique. And, um, yeah, I was a little Clinique girl. I wore the whole white jacket and the thing. And because um, I was obsessed with skincare and I still am obsessed with skincare and beauty and all of that kind of stuff. I can tell you and look great. You look amazing. It's, hey, it's, this is where it comes full circle is now all of these, these things that I was taught um, allow me to, you know, when I'm on location, and, you know, I need to, I can do my own hair and makeup, which Yay. is fantastic and not something that, a lot of people can do, so I'm very grateful for that. So I ended up working with a bunch of film and television makeup artists during that period of time and I ended up sort of, you know, my part-time job ended up becoming sort of a bit of a training round as well. 
So when I finished my degree, I was being offered um, a lot of commercial work as a hair and makeup artist. So I kind of just sort of like went in to sort of like let it just happen slowly. My parents, I don't think really, they were like, oh, she'll figure out what which internship it's she wants. It's just a phase. The, It's just a phase. You know, <laughs> so just let her do that thing and let her do her colouring in and all of that sort of stuff. And she'll figure out what internship she wants. Will she go to PwC? Will she go to KPMG? Whatever it was. Um, and I just never did. Like I just kind of continued to do creative things and work with people a lot of my friends were finishing film school and stuff like that so I ended up doing a lot of their you know their short films and music videos and a lot of them have ended up becoming very successful you know in that field still and um, and it makes me really happy to sort of know we all sort of came up through the ranks creatively together so um, yeah so I you know I think they would have loved my my parents would have loved for me to be you know, an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. Those were like the, the three, you know, you can choose to be one of these things. You, you can go do that. <laughs> and it never really happened. And I ended up sort of in advertising after makeup. I just sort of, I was done with um, that because creatively it was really great for me, but intellectually it wasn't really quite where I felt I was at at that point. So I moved into advertising and ended up in um, a, a, as a producer and then as a copywriter and then sort of into creative direction from there. So it was sort of a, a, a way to find a job that could fuse creativity with, um, you know, with a, an intellectual angle. And so I, f I found myself in that space and I was all at still all the time considering um, when would I go back and do my MBA? Um, you know, did I want to do um, a part-time law degree? Uh, and weirdly, um, the social media director at Endemol is doing a law degree, um, a Juris Doctor, just on the side. She's this, high she's this high-functioning, incredible human being who is always on. But for fun she's doing a law degree and we've been discussing it and I'm actually thinking of looking oh, a little bit. I don't know. I kind of, I feel like I have a law degree in me. So it's yeah. funny that my parent, my parents laugh because they're like, oh, you finally found the thing you really want to do in life. Um, but now you want to be a lawyer. And I'm like, no, I don't necessarily want to practice, but I think that um, that the the degree of critical thinking and argumentative skills and just um, problem solving, um, you know, the, the problem solving nature of the law, I find really interesting. So who knows? You who never. Knows? That's the whole thing. <laughs> it's literally a constant. Like you're constantly like searching. To, I don't know about you, but to feel satisfied and like wanting all those parts because there's there's this huge like obviously misconception they either creative or you're intellectual. But what happens to those people like us who are both? And then at certain different times in your life, you want to revisit stuff. You can definitely you can definitely do that. And I, I mean, for me, I miss the law a little bit. I didn't miss the day to day litigation as aspect of it, but then. Sure. <laughs> So that was part one of my chat with Melissa Leong. Click onto the next episode for part two and subscribe. Check me out at Instagram at Sharon Jahal or my website at www.sharonjahal.com for updates. We are the real ones.